Every year, literary tourists flock to Walt Whitman's historic home, and they cut a great lengths, driving hundreds of miles, even flying across the country, to chase one common goal, feeling a deeper connection to their literary idol. Something I've described before is having a, almost a physical shiver when you feel that kind of immediacy, even though I think my critical brain would tell me that I'm inventing that myself. But I turn that brain off to some degree when I come as a tourist. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, tourism, literary style. But first, outer space probably isn't in your travel plans this summer, but it could be soon. Last year, Haley Arsenault was a SpaceX crew member on Inspiration4, the first all-civilian mission to orbit Earth. Haley's upcoming book, Wild Ride, a memoir of IV drips and rocket ships, chronicles her unlikely journey from childhood cancer to space explorer. Producer Matt Darrow has more. Haley Arsenault grew up in a small southern town in Louisiana. It's one of those towns that has one red light. She was a happy kid, living the all-American childhood, surrounded by a loving family and a close-knit community. I think at a young age, I wanted to get the most out of life. Then one day, she started having pain in her leg. Her doctor said it was probably overused from Taekwondo, but the pain persisted and she started limping. So her mom took a second look. And she discovered this big lump above my knee, this, this visible tumor, and she really knew something was wrong. The next day, her family took her to the pediatrician's office. This time, the doctor took x-rays. And she looked at them and and came into the room, the exam room where I was with my parents, and she just told us straight up, this is what I was suspecting, bone cancer. And I'll never forget that moment. We all started crying, but I just kept saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And then I I turned to my mom and I said, well, God must hate me because that's at age 10, that's really where my my brain went. Haley was put through a brutal regimen of cancer treatment at St. Jude Children's Hospital, which included multiple rounds of chemo and major surgery. I lost my hair, which was, that was one of the lowest points for me because that was the moment when I looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself. And that everyone who looked at me would immediately know that I was sick. Of course, my 10-year-old self, I was so worried my dog wouldn't recognize me. She spent the next few years in and out of St. Jude's fighting osteosarcoma, a treatable but aggressive form of bone cancer. I was living away from home. I was about six hours from home, and I was away from everyone I had ever known. But I had this new group of people who loved me and supported me and made me feel safe. And I would always tell them, I'm going to come back and work with you. And I think they believed me. Haley eventually made good on that promise. 18 years later and cancer-free, she started working her dream job as a physician's assistant at St. Jude's. And then, out of the blue, she got a random email from her boss. And it's a very cryptic email. And he said he wants to speak to me regarding a unique opportunity. She thought it was probably for some kind of fundraising event. But when she joined the call later in the week, they start telling me about this space mission called Inspiration4. That would be the first all-civilian mission to orbit the Earth. But I'm listening to the call thinking, okay, what do I have to do with this? They told Haley the goal of the mission was to raise money for St. Jude Children's Hospital and that they wanted to send her as the St. Jude ambassador. And I, I actually laughed when they said that. I said, what, are you serious? And I followed that with, yes. But then I was like, okay, well, let me check with my mom. But my answer is yes. And, uh, and I'll just, I'll never forget hanging up the phone and looking at my hands. My hands were shaking. I even kind of had a moment where I was like, am I hallucinating? Like, was I really just asked to go to space? Haley wasn't hallucinating. She was going to be an astronaut, to be the first childhood cancer survivor and youngest American to ever travel to space. But first, she needed to get her mom's approval. She, of course, like, screamed, what? And um, and then I, we talked a little bit more, and then I was like, I have to do this. And she said, yes, you do. She said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The next couple of months, Haley met the other three crew members and began a grueling training process. They learned about orbital mechanics, flew the spacecraft simulator, and did water survival training. 
They even hiked Mount Rainier in Washington State. So by the time launch day rolled around, Haley was ready. I thought I was going to be really nervous. But I wake up launch day. I had gotten a great night's sleep. And I just, I looked in the mirror. I said, I'm going to space today. In the afternoon, the crew had lunch with their families and said their goodbyes. Then they were brought to the changing room where they put on their spacesuits. SpaceX has a really cool, sleek-looking spacesuit that is very heavy as well. It's about 25 pounds. Kind of like, imagine, like, Top Gun, like the like kind of one-piece, like, flight suit. But we put our spacesuits on, and then we get transported to our launch pad. So there's a giant rocket sitting there, and then next to it is a tower where we go up the elevators, and then we walk through this crew access arm, and then we get loaded into the spacecraft, which is the very top of the rocket. They had two and a half hours between getting strapped in and lifting off. In the meantime, Mission Control did their final checkouts, and the crew reviewed last-minute procedures. Spears were really high, and my crew members and I are even cracking some jokes. One of my crew members plays the Star Wars theme song just to be very on theme. And then they start counting down from 10. Mission Control is doing 10, 9, 8, just like in the movies. But what's not like in the movies is we hear them a few seconds delayed. So we actually lift it off a few seconds before they get to zero on their clock. And I just feel this big jolt. Basically, it sounded like, <laughs> like a, kind of like a really fast race car, but it was the fastest sound I've ever heard. And we start feeling these increased G-forces, these gravitational forces that really feel like multiple people are lying on top of you. But it was the smoothest ride. I couldn't believe how smooth the ride on the rocket was. All the crew members and I were still on audio. We can hear each other and, and we're like talking through launch and really just enjoying it. And I had this huge smile on my face and was even like kind of laughing just like from just pure joy. I was having so much fun launching into space. and so. It was about nine minutes of these high G-forces, these loud sounds, and then all of a sudden, there's perfect stillness. And my straps from uh, my seat start to float. And I knew we were in space. Haley says seeing the Earth from space was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. We had this large window on our spacecraft. It was actually the largest window ever flown in space. It was a cupola, so it was a kind of a dome, and I could put my head, my whole body into it, and I could see the entire 360-degree view of the Earth with the blackness of space around it and stars. And I just remember the first time I saw the Earth from that cupola window— I was in the middle of performing a task and I just completely stopped in my tracks. And one of my favorites was going over the U.S. at night and just seeing all the city lights lit up. In a way, I felt small and I felt like the earth was small because we would go around the earth in, in about an hour and a half. It made me feel so really united with my fellow earthlings. Seeing it from that perspective, you're like, well, really, we're all one. We're all part of this one planet. We're all united. Altogether, Haley and the crew orbited Earth for three days. She says she spent much of that time being upside down with the help of zero gravity. I loved zero gravity and I loved being able to do flips and feel like I was flying and just do so many things that I've never been able to do and never will be able to do again. And so I was constantly upside down because being upside down feels the same as being right side up. So I was, I'd kind of say, well, why, why wouldn't you be upside down? But zero gravity wasn't always just fun and games. Putting trash away was the most inconvenient because you would go to put trash in the trash bag and then other pieces of trash would float out. And um, and so it was constantly trying to manage all that. And then especially as we kind of got more used to it, we would be able to like really quickly open it, stuff it in and close it. But, um, but yeah, you can imagine the frustration of us trying to put away an M&M's wrapper and then like all these pieces of trash from the last day are trying to float out at you. When the spaceship returned to Earth, splashing down in the Atlantic Ocean, the mission had raised close to $250 million for St. Jude Children's Hospital. Looking back on her journey from childhood cancer to space explorer, 
Haley says she's actually grateful for her cancer. It just gave me such a love for life because of those days where I didn't know if I would have more time. I didn't know if I'd be able to grow up. Now when I work with, with kids with cancer, with some of them I do share that having cancer in some ways is a gift and they're gonna be so grateful for it because of everything that, that it's gonna push them to do. When I was going through cancer treatment, I just wanted to get to the end of it. I had no idea how amazing my life would be, how much having cancer would enrich my life. And I had no idea I would go to space and be an astronaut. But I think that's the beauty of life is you don't know what's around the corner, but in a really magical way. Like there will be better days than you can even imagine right now. For With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara. Haley Arsena's upcoming book is called Wild Ride, a memoir of ivy drips and rocket ships. A while back, English professor Mara Scanlon took her class of self-proclaimed wit maniacs to the Walt Whitman House in Camden, New Jersey. Mara's a professor of English at the University of Mary Washington and says her students were awestruck by being in the intimate spaces where Whitman had lived and breathed, including his bathroom. They called themselves the Wit Maniacs because they so adored Whitman. And they were part of a larger <laughs> multi-university, actually a digital humanities project funded by, by the NEH. So I think that, though, Whitman is a very intimate poet when you, when you really read him. So he says things to the reader, um, some lines that I love. Camarado, this is no book. Who touches this touches a man. Is it night? Are we here together alone? It is I you hold and who holds you. I spring from the pages into your arms. So he holds this philosophy that even as you read his books, he's there with you physically. And we, we did such a deep dive in Whitman. And then because we did a number of literary tourist trips, I think also feeling like they were right in the places where he was. They were in these rooms, even in kind of intimate spaces. When we looked into Whitman's kind of rare indoor bathroom in his little house in Camden, New Jersey, <laughs> one of the students behind me said with absolute <laughs> awe and excitement, we know he was naked here. As though we were <laughs> really in contact with that physical body. And it felt real. Some of these places don't feel like, you know, this is the author's genuine writing backdrop. Yes. The Whitman House in Camden has done a tremendous job of preserving the house, both with artifacts that actually belonged to Whitman. And then because Whitman was so photographed, including in his home, when they didn't have his exact things, they were often able to duplicate them exactly with another period piece from the home. And they have it set up very much as it was in his final days. And it's we had a, a private tour with a volunteer guide who was extremely knowledgeable. I think the tensions in tourism are interesting there in that, you know, I think theorists of tourism would say clearly all of those spaces no matter an author or anybody else's, are curated and mediated and they're having you see what they want you to see. And you have to you have to suspend some disbelief to go into them and feel like I'm really connecting with this author here. It helps when you can say, oh, my hand is touching the banister his hand touched, or I am, you know, one foot from the bed where he died. But I think a tourist has to suspend that disbelief in all kinds of ways. What about you? Did you feel wowed by Whitman being in his house that way? Or were you more touched and edified to see your young student's reaction? You know, I think both. So um, I, literary tourism is something that a variety of literary scholars like me do. And yet it's definitely a little bit of an embarrassment because tourism implies a kind of exuberance and sentiment <laughs> that seems amateur. And the fangirling. Exactly fangirling. And I have to say, I'm I'm pretty prone to it, even on my own. But I I do think in the Whitman house in particular, 
the best way I can describe the way the students felt that day was joy and grief. They were so moved to be in that place, so grief-stricken in a way about this man they felt <laughs> they felt they knew so well, which Whitman, I think, would have loved, honestly. And yet we couldn't, you know, we couldn't touch him. So we were as close as we could get. And there's no doubt that there are ways that the students' responses acted as a kind of conduit for my own thrill at being there. Something I've described before is having a, almost a physical shiver when mm. you feel that kind of immediacy, even though I think my critical brain would tell me that I'm inventing that myself. But I turn that brain off to some degree when I come as a tourist. I'm amazed to hear you say they felt grief. They really did. And on the same trip, we were supposed to go to Whitman's grave, which he had designed himself, as I mentioned. We'd seen all kinds of pictures of it online, the actual grave today, his own drawings for the grave and so on. And they had chosen one of Whitman's very late poems called So Long, in which he he really is fit, bidding goodbye to the reader. The final words of that poem are, remember my words, I may again return. I love you. I depart from materials. I am as one disembodied, triumphant, dead. And they wanted to read that poem at his grave. I've shared before an anecdote that when we got there, the, the cemetery had closed earlier than we thought. And I, I thought the students were going to revolt on the bus. They were, they were devastated. <laughs> but one of the more enterprising undergraduates found a place where there was a larger than normal hole in the black metal fence. <laughs> and we went and read our poem out loud. And um, and they were, they were in, literally in tears. They felt at that late point so connected to what this man had meant for the country and to them personally. And he was, though his work is often kind of boasty and larger than life, when you really dig into Whitman, you find he was really a very, very gentle and nurturing soul. You yourself are also a devotee of the poet Emily Dickinson, and you've done literary tourism going to her former home, right? I am, and I, I have. I've been to her home a few times, which is in Amherst, Massachusetts. The first time I was there, I went to a site where she had lived through kind of her young adulthood and had come of age where her family had moved for a while. That house is no longer there. It, it was a um, garage when I was there. But it was right on the edge of the Amherst Cemetery, indeed where Dickinson and her family are buried. And part of what it really made me think about is how many folks talk about Dickinson as a poet. Often people will say obsessed with death, but I could see from the vantage point of her old home that she would look down on that town graveyard. And anytime there was a funeral or mourners who had come to the cemetery, that she would have seen them from her own home in the years that she was developing as a poet. The thing that struck me most on that trip was a, a corner of that graveyard that would have been visible that had a, a kind of very small brick shelter in place. It had been used in the 19th century, and I, I guess through the early 20th century too, to house the dead during winter months when it was too cold to dig into the ground in Massachusetts. And so they would wait and bury them when the ground was not frozen. And when I saw it, I thought so much about the poems Dickinson has where she thinks about death as a community and the dead, the embodied dead near each other, even speaking to each other. And that weird little brick home where the dead would have been stored for a long period of time fascinated me. I had never known where that, that house was or thought about how it might have affected her own perspective on mortality. You know, the cemetery in my hometown where my parents are buried and all of their friends and people of a certain era have one by one gone to be buried— a friend of mine has affectionately called it like a scene from our town, right? <laughs> that they're all there together again. And one can imagine the parties, the conversation, the camaraderie. Mm -hmm. 
I remember when my when my grandmother was being laid to rest, my grandfather said to me about about that spot, uh, she can see her old neighborhood from here. Right. And he felt very comforted about about that. I like cemeteries a lot for the stories they tell. And I'm sure that many places in the North had had a structure like that, but I, I had never seen one before. I didn't process what it would have been like when I thought about it. When Dickinson died because she did not move in public circles, the hired men from her family's home, who she did talk to still and see, the the farmers of the town lowered the gates in their fields and the hired men carried her through the fields rather than through the streets in her coffin to lay her to rest in the family plot. It's really beautiful to think about that on that landscape too. So often literary tourism is visiting the gravesite of an author. It often is, in part because authors' homes are often not preserved. Sometimes they are preserved by private foundations or groups. Sometimes one of the homes, for instance, because Whitman didn't own any other homes, this home that used to be on Mickle Street, it's now on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Camden, is still there. And then at some point, somebody preserved that homestead. Also, Whitman was becoming, if not famous, infamous in his own time. So somebody had <laughs> the the presence of mind to do that. I think one of the things that's fascinating about literary tourism is the confusion or conflation of a poet's body of work with the poet's body. You know, Whitman himself says in those lines I read to you that he's touching you through his books. He talks about it like a physical contact when you're holding his books, you're touching him. And you can get that from a copy of Leaves of Grass that you you pick up in, you know, your local bookstore today. The next level of it is seeing it in Whitman's own hand or his own typeset. And then you feel like you're getting a little bit closer. But the question of what is the relationship of those words that he believed himself would connect you to a place where his actual physical body was. And, you know, I think that, again, the literary critic side of me would say that's a that's a strange or false conflation. In fact, um, there, there's a book called the Skeptic's Guide to Writer's Houses by Anne Trubach. And she talks about that kind of tourism as lit porn or voyeurism. (laughs) And she says, even about Camden, she says, there was, is, and will be no reason to go to Camden to find Whitman. She had a very different experience than I did with my class. You also went to the Jane Austen Center in Bath And we're surprised to realize it really did not have the essence of Jane Austen herself, but rather, you know, a lot of material on movies that have been made based on her books. Yes. You know, Austen's own homes and and places are not well preserved. And so people go to see her grave or they, they tour sites, for instance, a site that was used as Pemberley in one of the films. Though I don't teach Austen, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan. And so I went to that center and was, <laughs> it actually, it has a lot of information about Austin's time, including the period in which Austin would have been in Bath. So it's not that there's nothing there, but in terms of the author, it was kept more at that sort of amateur level. And um, one of my students who just graduated, in fact, who had done a program in Bath very recently commented a lot about the intended audience for that center. And she felt that it was kind of being pitched to middle-aged women in love with Colin Firth as much as to people who had (laughs) really read Jane Austen or read some of Austen's less famous books like Persuasion that actually have you know, sections in Bath. But, you know, there's a huge picture of, of Colin Firth in the Jane Austen tea room, for instance, <laughs> looking looking down right. at you. So in terms of feeling that kind of shiver, none of it there, right? I learned some things, I enjoyed it, but I did not feel any of the kind of imminence or immediacy that I have sometimes felt when I, I have been a literary tourist in other places. 
But you're not a middle-aged woman in love with Colin Firth. Oh, but indeed I am. (laughs) (laughs) It's that whole argument about, you know, are you fully human if you love Survivor or The Bachelorette or, you know, some of these more frivolous films or books, Mm -hmm. whereas you may enjoy deep dives in more literary works, but also like a little je ne sais quoi. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. And I, and truly, I mean, as a literary scholar and as a teacher, I'm not going to go for Survivor or The Bachelor. But I do think that, that all kinds of reading are valuable and can open people to experiences, to words, to time periods, to philosophies that they maybe haven't encountered in other places. So, uh, you know, I, I fully believe in a place for all kinds of reading. It's just a reminder to me that we all have different authors and writings that really speak to us. And each one of those is really fertile territory for this kind of literary travel. I think that's true, especially because there's so many kinds of tourism here. Just today, we've talked about seeing manuscripts and archival works, journals about seeing and personal effects like, you know, Whitman's glasses and Haversack and Kane. We've talked about being in houses where they live. We've talked about places where their books are set or places where they, where they actually wrote them. We've talked about visiting their graves. For different authors, there will be different elements of that available more or less. For instance, when I visited the Whitman site, the digital Dickinson things were really just beginning to explode. Now you can see almost all of Dickinson's poems as she hand wrote them. And she herself, unlike Whitman, her contemporary, she did not want to see them typeset in print. Looking at them in their manuscript version is the way much of the research on Dickinson is going to return to what they call the scriptural version of her poems. And I can see those from my own living room now. I don't have to go to Harvard Library or Amherst Library to see them. I would still like to because I would like to be next to those pages as those, you know, I don't know, as though somehow it made Dickinson more real to me. But I can see them. And so there's a a lot of layers to literary tourism, I think, because we seek a connection to those books or those authors in a variety of sites and ways. Mara Scanlon is an English professor at the University of Mary Washington. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason and Virginia Humanities. If you're looking for a place to travel with bustling cities and breathtaking natural landscapes, where you can also get affordable plastic surgery, look no further than Thailand. Rhea Farber is a sociology professor at William & Mary. She says Thailand has become the global hub of medical tourism, or some people call it sun, sea, and stitches. So medical tourism in Thailand is a pretty big industry. And the government has actually been promoting it for several decades. So since the 1997 Asian financial crisis, the Thai government has created initiatives to bring foreign patients into Thailand for health and medical services. Thai doctors, you know, are American board certified. These hospitals are internationally accredited. And not to mention, it's a beautiful country where people feel very comfortable recovering on the beach. So a lot of people talk about medical tourism as, you know, sea, sun, and stitches. And of course, you don't want to go snorkeling when you have stitches. And you want to be careful if you're flying and you just had surgery. And there are all of these, you know, risk factors to keep in mind. But the idea of recovering in a country that is indeed beautiful and has a very, very strong tourism industry already is very appealing to healthcare consumers who have a lot of different reasons to travel abroad for healthcare services. But I wouldn't have thought Thailand for medical services. 
Why was that the thing the government seized on? So a couple of interesting historical factors. The first was the Vietnam War. And this was a time when Thai surgeons were trained in plastic surgery techniques because Thailand was, as some say, a nerve center. Um, It was a major hub for military personnel. And so Thai doctors were trained around that time in these plastic surgery techniques. And thus, a capability of medical tourism was actually begun. Why plastic surgery during the Vietnam War? You wouldn't think that would appeal to soldiers. Right. Well, it was to treat things like burn wounds. And so medical capabilities were actually formed specifically in that time when Thai doctors were trained in those kinds of techniques. Um, Thailand has become a hub for medical services and the government has initiated various kinds of policies and incentives for numerous reasons. And those historical factors are one of them. The Asian financial crisis was a time when Thais themselves could not afford beds in private hospitals anymore. And so Thai health officials, state officials actually got word that some surgeons, some Thai surgeons were performing gender affirming surgeries for transgender women. And these surgeries were bringing in a couple of foreign transgender patients. So when Thai transgender women would travel or migrate to other parts of the world, Transgender communities from various parts of the world would learn about these capabilities that were in Thailand, would come to Thailand for those surgeries. Now the financial crisis in 1997 hits, Thai hospitals are looking for a way to stay afloat. And a surgeon that I spoke to in Thailand actually told me that at that time, Officials from the Ministry of Public Health came and met with him and those hospital executives and formed a plan to essentially promote this Thai surgeon's services and surgeries to global healthcare consumers. What countries are most of the tourists coming from? Yeah, so it really depends on the services themselves. For Thailand, there's a lot of intra-Asian tourism. So they are coming from neighboring countries. They're coming from Vietnam. They're coming from Malaysia, Singapore, uh, before the pandemic, China. So within Thailand, there's a lot of travel from within Asia, especially. And so do you think that the medical tourists coming from within Asia, let's say Vietnam to Thailand, they're doing it because the surgery is better or because it's cheaper or both? I think it's all of those reasons. I think the cost savings are enormous, as well as the fact that some people cannot access services in their home countries. If someone's healthcare system is overloaded already, they might, out of necessity, need to travel across borders. I think if someone is unable to access services, if they are illegal in their home country, if there's a long waiting list... What types of surgeries are most popular? Just a few of the biggest. So Thailand is very well known for its cosmetic and gender affirming surgeries. You know, it's what some people say. It's a mecca for those kinds of surgeries. It's very well known for dental care, even heart surgery, which is a fraction of the price that it would be in the United States. You know, any kind of orthopedic surgery, hip replacement, things like that. Are many Americans choosing to do it? Americans make up a huge portion of medical tourists. So some estimates say about 10% of medical tourists are from the United States. And, you know, about 30 million people in the United States are uninsured. So many people are underinsured. So many people are unemployed. Not to mention if you are insured, some insurance companies actually provide benefits and incentives to go abroad for healthcare, right? So this is institutionalized in a lot of ways. And the CDC, the American Medical Association actually offer guidance to potential medical tourists about some of the risks and some of the caveats and things to be aware of. 
It's so interesting that you say this grew out of the Vietnam War and the training that the Thai doctors learned with Americans from that experience and then first became known for its operations with trans women. And yet, what is the experience for Thai trans women now? What is the Thai trans culture? You've studied this and spent a year in Thailand interviewing a number of women. Yeah. So firstly, Thai transgender people cannot change their legal identification cards at this point to state their genders. And so for many of them, they are misgendered from the moment they step foot in a healthcare facility. So I spoke to one trans woman who said, you know, have you ever been to a government hospital at six in the morning and 200 people are lined up very crowded and the announcer of this hospital just shouts mister and calls your name and you have a very big disagreement in front of everybody. Can you imagine how humiliating that is? And so for many of us, we don't want to go to a healthcare facility. So we'll just self-prescribe what we need and hope for the best, essentially. And in my research, I found that local people, including trans women, were crowded out. This is another phenomenon of medical tourism or an effect People in destination countries can be crowded out of healthcare services as foreign patients are targeted instead. So, you know, a surgeon that I spoke to who essentially began his practice offering gender affirming surgeries to Thai transgender women and then met with those state health officials who catalyzed his practice to foreign trans healthcare consumers. The cost of his surgeries, he told me, increased about 400%. And so Thai transgender women can no longer afford those very same services that they once accessed years ago. So these are issues and themes that come up you know, for Thai transgender women and transgender people more broadly. And I believe that medical tourism can exacerbate inequities in destination countries if it is not regulated and if rights are not guaranteed to all people. Do you think the trend of the boom in medical tourism could eventually influence the U.S. healthcare system at home? I'm just wondering if, you know, as medical tourism grows and these other countries create sophisticated and appealing and cheaper systems. Do you think it might someday influence the U.S. healthcare system? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I think that medical tourism and these kinds of international trends that we're seeing in healthcare commodification, in specializations, in the ways that countries are branding themselves, right, as healthcare destinations, right. these have huge implications for the nation at large. And so I think, let's say, Malaysia now becoming a hub for hepatitis C treatment could have huge ripple effects for countries throughout the world that learn from Malaysia that they can too produce generic treatments and offer these kinds of drugs, not just to their citizens, but to global consumers as well. And so I absolutely think that medical tourism can change medical practice throughout the world, can change healthcare relations, can change the technologies that are offered, the ways that they are offered. And I think medical tourism can change the meaning and the brand of nations altogether. Rhea Farber is a sociology professor at William & Mary. From the Mississippi Delta to the dark sandy beaches of Iceland, Courtney Watson has racked up the frequent flyer miles as a literary tourist. She's about to take us on a tour of the literary South, sharing her experiences at the historical homes of Ernest Hemingway, Eudora Welty, Richard Wright, and William Faulkner, Courtney's an English professor at Radford University. Courtney, how did you get hooked on literary tourism? What was the first experience that opened you up to it? 
Well, I was very fortunate in my PhD program um, at the University of Southern Mississippi. I was a student at the Center for Writers there, and I got to take a class in literary tourism in the South. So for most of the class, we were in the classroom, but then we hit the road and we went to some incredible sites throughout Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana. Uh, We went to Jackson and saw Richard Wright's home, as well as Eudora Welty's. And um, then later that summer, I headed out on my own because I was really, really interested. So I set out to Monroeville, Alabama to see the home place of Truman Capote and Harper Lee. So once I once I got started with that, I I really couldn't get enough of it. And I was so excited about it. So what are you seeing in each place? Is it a house, maybe a bar they frequented, or is it a natural landscape? You know, it's incredibly different at each site. So if you go somewhere um, like Hemingway's Key West, people want to see where Hemingway liked to drink. They want to go to the no-name pub. They want to go to the saloon. They want to go to all those places where he drank the Cuba Libras um, and just had a ball, where his legend kind of was made. Um, Whereas someone who is going to Eudora Welty's home, that person probably has a different impulse of what they want to see. This was the home that she lived in her entire life. She wrote all of her great works, all of her short stories, all of her novels. And what you can do when you go through the house is you see literally like where she wrote it all down, where she typed everything up. Her typewriter is still exactly where she left it. The house is kind of frozen in the 1980s. And if you've read a lot of her work, you can see the reflection of her home and of Jackson, Mississippi uh, in that house. You can see where it was in her stories. Like it all shows up. What about Richard Wright? Richard Wright as well. Richard Wright and Eudora Welty were from two very different Jackson, Mississippis. So you see really the struggle there when you're visiting those places. If you go somewhere like Faulkner's house in Oxford, Mississippi, he wrote this this fictional county called Yoknapatafa, and it is just reflected directly in Oxford, Mississippi. So if you go to his house, they have where he outlined his books on the walls of his house. So you can see that. You can actually like get up close and personal with his work. And that's really fascinating to see. And really the entire town of Oxford is very devoted to Faulkner. Like it just, it's a living, breathing Faulkner atmosphere, really. I bet you that most people who do, let's say, literary tourism Mm -hmm. are not on the circuit so much as there's one author and one book or set of books that they love the most. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of of moving feeling they get from visiting these sites that maybe to someone else, eh, don't show them very much. Yes. For some of these sites, I really just wanted to go to the place where it all happened. My favorite example is probably when I was in Paris for the 50th anniversary Hemingway conference, and the theme was a movable feast. And you could go through that book And walk the streets of Paris and go to the exact places where he went, see more or less the exact things that he saw. Um, I'm a huge Hemingway fan. I'm a huge fan of that particular era of Hemingway writing. So that was a very powerful and exciting experience to be able to, to see what he saw and go to the places he went. He loved the bookstore Shakespeare and Company. The owner of the bookstore would always lend him books because he didn't have the money to buy his own books. And he talks about going to that bookstore. So there was definitely a moment when I was in that bookstore where I was like, oh, wow, Hemingway stood like right here. I'm exactly where he was. And that that was very exciting. And with Hemingway again, I guess if we if I have an author, he's probably the one, just because I, for better or worse, I find his life to be absolutely fascinating. So down in the Keys, um, at Sloppy Joe's Saloon, late on a Key West afternoon, you can kind of feel him there, and that's very exciting. 
do some of these places have more authentic birthplace sites and ties to authors than others? Yes, absolutely. And that's something that I've studied a lot in my work about um, authenticity and commodification in literary tourism. Some places are, they're like, he lived here. It's exactly the way he left it. We haven't changed anything. And really, Faulkner's home, Roanoke, is a lot like that. What is Roanoke? Roanoke is the plantation home uh, that he bought, and it was very run down. And there's this wonderful story where he told his wife he, he bought the house, and she sat down on the stairs and cried because it was in such terrible condition. But it's beautiful now. It's really wonderfully maintained by the University of Mississippi, and it's a great, great place to visit. Um, other places are more sensationalized. Um, there's a writer called Willie Morris who wrote about the Witch of Yazoo City. So if you go to Yazoo City, Mississippi, and you go to the cemetery to see his grave, they also have a grave for the witch, and it's all chained up so she doesn't get out. <laughs> um, so that is kind of manufactured. So you see that, and you see a lot of places where it's not necessarily that it's not authentic, but it was like heavily commodified. And you see that, I think, in Monroeville, Alabama, where there's a whole cottage industry built around Harper Lee. So everything is named after something in the book, like whether it's Boo Radley's Bar and Grill or just everything is like To Kill a Mockingbird themed. And then there's Harry Potter tourism in yes, England, right? Absolutely. And that is not authentic, of course, right. and yet feels super authentic. Right, right. Well, and with any sort of fantasy, I think as well, I um, have done some some research in Iceland. And one of the big draws, Iceland's a very literary country, but one of the big draws actually comes from film and television where people want to see like Game of Thrones tourism because they filmed in Iceland a lot. And so there are all of these excursions and things that are themed like Game of Thrones. And you can go see where it was filmed and see particular landscapes and stuff like that that are very recognizable from the series. When you say Iceland's a very literary place, mm -hmm. such as? Oh, in Iceland, they really celebrate storytelling. There are bookstores everywhere. The traditional holiday gift is books. So you really see that celebrated. It has a very strong literary community. I think what people probably know the best is the, the Icelandic noir series. There's lots of detective series and, and things like that. But it's also a really great place for science fiction as well, because it does have that otherworldly landscape. And I know that I was definitely inspired when I was writing there, just because it's this really sort of bewitching setting. What are some of the places where the folklore matches the dramatic landscape there? So if you go along the south coast of Iceland, there's a gigantic, like, Yellowstone-sized volcano called Katla. And the volcano is underneath this glacier that looks like a mountain range. And if you go to this town called Vik, it's, like, in the shadows, and it's just, like, in between this black sea and this black sand beach with this looming volcano in the background, and it's just absolutely stunning. So there's all this local folklore and all these local legends about the trolls dragging women out to sea. Um, there's these waves, which they're called sneaker waves, and they're black waves against the black sand beach. And what they say to you, there's signs plastered everywhere of just don't don't turn your back on these waves because they'll get you. And apparently people have been dragged out to sea in just a few inches of water. So they are very, very powerful. And that's something that's weaved into not just the narrative of the country, but their folklore and their fiction as well. Your own award-winning piece called Never Turn Your Back on the Water yes. <laughs> was written there, inspired by that? Yes, yes. I was actually uh, in the town of Vic for just a day. And so there's these gigantic rocks out in the water, like these huge boulders that probably go 50 feet in the air. They're absolutely enormous. And so I was just sitting on on that beach, and it's a, a lava beach. It's a black sand beach, and the sky is gray, and the water is kind of silvery black, and it's 
just a really mystical looking place. And I was like, you know, I, I think I know what happens here. I know what a story here could look like. So I wrote the first few lines just sitting on that beach on my phone and just looking out over the water. It was an absolutely mesmerizing view. It was really, really cool. And does someone get taken by the water? Yes. Yes. Um, but it turns out to be an okay thing. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. What do you advise people who would love to do this sort of thing, mm -hmm. but but don't know how to make it all happen? Are there mm -hmm. websites or places where people are especially good at putting the guidelines together for you? You know, I don't know if there's any one like central place to find things, but I advise people who want to start with literary tourism to start locally to see if there are any literary tourism sites that are close to where they live. Maybe make a day trip out of it. To see it for yourself is a profound experience. Um, to go to the place and be like, okay, I'm standing in the exact spot where he stood or where she stood and and I can see it for myself. I, I imagine it's what the, the Harry Potter fans feel like when they're on platform nine and three quarters. Like just maybe if I stand here long enough, I can go through the wall too. Courtney Watson, thank you. Thank you. Courtney Watson is an English professor at Radford University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.